0: The last couple of Sunday mornings that I have been preaching, we have overviewed the story of the Bible thus far. On January the 10th, we overviewed the story of the Old Testament. We didn't look at every single book, but simply the the story as it's found from Genesis through the last chronological book, the book of Nehemiah. And then the last time I preached on January the 17th, we looked at that little blank page, the page between the Testaments. What happened in world history? What happened in Jewish culture that led us to what we see in the New Testament times. And, of course, in this week, we're going to be thinking about the New Testament. But as I said, when we began this whole thing on January the 10th, no matter where we find ourselves in Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, one thing we must always keep in mind is it is all about Jesus Christ. That's what all of it's about. No matter what book of the Bible we're studying, no matter what passages passage we might be looking at, it's all about Christ. We're doing this for a couple of reasons. One is our theme for this year, 2016, is is strengthening our roots, knowing God through His Word. And so as we think about knowing God through His Word, we thought it'd be a good idea to begin by simply overviewing the story of Scripture. And here's why. I love Bible classes. I love teaching Bible classes. And I, I like sitting and learning as well. And I'm not teaching and I like, I like preaching, of course. I like hearing good preaching, and sometimes I like my own preaching. Uh, but I, but I like hearing when someone dives into a text or dives into a topic, and you can tell they've really studied and they're trying to bring out some things, but here's sometimes what it's, what we struggle with. Sometimes we go to a Bible class on Sunday morning, and maybe in that Bible class we're studying something, let's just say from the book of Galatians. We study four or five, six verses from Galatians, and we figure out what Paul meant in that particular text, and that's good. And then we come in here for a worship period and someone gets up to preach and maybe they're, maybe they're preaching something from the life of Abraham and talking to us about him as, as an example and that helps us in that, that way. And then we come back on Sunday night and maybe on Sunday night maybe we're looking at something from Proverbs. Maybe we're seeing some, some Proverbs that tell us about a particular area of life and how there's wisdom in scripture for that. And then we go to a Bible class on Wednesday night. And on Wednesday night Bible class, maybe we're thinking about a, a topic as well. Maybe that class you're in is studying God's plan for the home. And maybe that Wednesday night you're talking about something like what it's like to be a Christian husband. Now, all those things are good. And all those things are biblical. But sometimes we struggle because I've learned something from Galatians and something from Genesis and something from Proverbs and something that's all over the Bible about being a Christian husband. And it feels like I'm just trying to put together a giant puzzle. I think by doing what we've been doing these, these in these sermons, hopefully we are stepping back and seeing the forest instead of just trying to see a whole bunch of trees. Sometimes we need to be reminded of the big picture of Scripture. It is powerful for us to dig down into specific texts and specific topics. I hope we do that more often than not. But sometimes it's worth also stepping back and saying, what's all this about? In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, mankind, of course, had fallen into sin. Adam and Eve had fallen into sin in the Garden of Eden. And God doles out punishment to the man, Adam, to the woman, Eve, and then to the serpent. And in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed or offspring and her seed or offspring. He will bruise, literally crush your head. And you will bruise his heel. In reality, from that verse, which, by the way, in my copy of God's word, I've drawn a cross beside that one verse. Because from that verse onward, everything else in Scripture points back to that promise. That mankind had fallen into sin. There's no way they could have solved their own problem. But God gives the first glimmer of hope in that verse. And everything else points back to it. And shows us it's all about Jesus. In fact, if you wanted to, you could outline the entire Bible pointing back to that one verse. For example, you might see in Genesis promises of redemption, promises of forgiveness. That particular promise, of course, in Genesis 3.15, but also promises given to people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That God promises to lay out His plan throughout all time. Exodus through Esther, you might lay out as pictures of redemption as God's people continually fall into sin. But God, through his grace and mercy and his plan, continues to work out what he would have his people to do and continues to show that through individual lives, as well as through that nation, the Israelites that will come along in time. Job, through song of Solomon, you might call poems of redemption as they give us the words as well as the emotion that we sometimes use to praise and thank God for what he has done. How often do we go back to passages like the Psalms simply to see the emotion and that it's okay to pour out our hearts before God? The rest of the Old Testament points out prophecies of redemption. As prophets like Isaiah and Malachi and others in between promise that God is going to work out his plan, that he is working out his plan. passages like Isaiah 53, that there will be a suffering servant, one to come, who will save mankind from their sin. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. then, of course give us the presentation of redemption. Here he is. Jesus the Christ. Here's that one promise in Genesis 3.15. Finally on the scene. Finally the plan is unfolding. And you see it worked out through the life. And the, the, the work of Jesus Christ. Culminating of course. In the cross and his resurrection. The book of Acts then tells us. About preaching redemption. Now that. Jesus has come. What are we supposed to do? We we proclaim him. We preach him to the world. Romans through Jude then give us principles of redemption. Now that I have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, by his sacrifice, how am I supposed to live? How am I supposed to honor that? These are the books that tell us that. And in Revelation, gives us the perfection of redemption. God's people will be at home forever together, praising him because they have been redeemed. You see the whole Bible points back to that one verse. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring; he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. Everything points back to that. But it's all about Jesus. We have looked at the Old Testament in these lessons. We've looked at that blank page between the Bible, the uh, Old Testament, excuse me, and the New Testament. But this morning as we finish these three lessons, Let's turn our attention to the New Testament. And yes, I'm putting myself on a clock again. Because we're going to look at 27 books in 27 minutes. And by the way, you could have started the clock when I started. We're going to overview the entire New Testament. And see, what is this all about? What is this story about? And as we did when we consider the Old Testament. you Remember, we divide the Old Testament into two major parts. We're going to do the same with the New Testament. When you divide the New Testament, it really divides into two major parts. The life of Christ. And then the legacy of Christ. What Christ was. And then what Christ requires of his people. And so this morning, I hope you have one of the handouts because it's another one of those half sheets that goes inside your Bible and maybe will help you as you come back to these books later to begin to put some of the, the scaffolding or some of the, uh, uh, the walls on the scaffolding, some of the paint on the walls, maybe you might better picture there. As we give you the big picture and you come back in your own study and fill in. But think with me, first of all, about the life of Christ. Four books here, obviously. The books we call the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, that are not four different life stories, but four accounts of one life that when put together, give us a beautiful and glorious picture of who Christ was and what Christ did. We'll give a key word for each one of them. Matthew was originally written to a Jewish audience. Almost countless quotations from the Old Testament. This was said by the prophet, this was done so that it will be fulfilled by the prophet. But the emphasis in Matthew, remember it's Matthew alone that contains for us the entire text of the Sermon on the Mount. And so Matthew, in many ways, the emphasis is on preaching. That Jesus came, yes, to be a king, that's emphasized, but also Jesus came to be a great preacher. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 13 is parable after parable after parable after parable after parable. I believe it's nine of them in that one chapter. Jesus, if the book of Matthew was originally written to a Jewish audience, Jesus came to be the great rabbi, the great teacher, the great preacher. And you see that emphasized. The key verse, I believe, is Matthew 4 verse 17. At that time, Jesus came preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He came preaching. Yes, he did a lot of other things, but he came preaching. Mark is the shortest account of the, of the gospel, just 16 chapters. And Mark was originally written to a Roman audience. And the Romans had nothing that so uh, amazed them as power. And so you give that as the key word. In 16 chapters, you remember the book of Mark does not include the story of the birth of Christ. It jumps straight into his ministry. And for just 16 chapters, it is peppered with stories, the miracles of Jesus. They are constant in this book to grasp the attention of those Roman readers that were amazed by power. And here's one who wasn't just doing some kind of sideshow antics. He was doing miracles that were verifiable. Where people were, were amazed by what he did. It is the story of power. Luke is the hardest account of the gospel to give one word, a one uh, word key phrase for. For two reasons. One, it's the longest account of the gospel. Even though it has less chapters than Matthew, it actually has more words because some of those chapters are really long <laughs> in Luke. But also because Luke gives us the biggest mixture. Well, all the Gospels, like Matthew, for example, talks about preaching as well as miracles and things. But Luke doesn't really give one any more than the other. He's just giving a mixture. But there are a couple of things in Luke that are not found in other accounts of the Gospel. Maybe the most famous is the story of the Good Samaritan. And there are other stories like that not found anywhere else in the Gospel accounts. And so, for lack of a better way of putting it, we will give Luke the keyword Parables. And I will go ahead and tell you, if you want to put this on your handout, that's the weakest of the key words of any of the ones we'll talk about, because Luke simply gives us a mixture, a little bit of everything. But Luke was originally written to a Greek audience and nothing so amazed the Greeks as philosophy and thinking. And so it's no wonder you have stories like the Good Samaritan that would have caused people to have to think through some things whether they agreed with it or not. They would have had to wrestle in their own minds with some of the teachings of Christ. And then John. For many people, John is their favorite account of the gospel. Personally, it's mine. For some, it's their favorite book of the Bible. John's key word is personal for two reasons. John chapter 1 and verse 14, John said, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John's the one who later in his gospel will not even call himself by name, but will say the disciple whom Jesus loved is a personal nature. But it's also personal because this is the account of the gospel that contains so many accounts of Jesus one-on-one with someone. Nicodemus, John chapter 3. The woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, John chapter 4. Jesus and Thomas, John chapter 20, and so on and so forth. It is a very personal account. As John writes much later in life, And is looking back on the life of Christ, but also what the life of Christ has influenced up to that point in time. He writes a very personal account of the gospel. When you read all four accounts of the gospel together, you don't have four different stories. You have one amazing life. You have the greatest biography ever written. It's often been called the greatest story ever told. But it's Jesus' life. And it culminates with, of course, his death and then his overcoming of death and the resurrection. And the rest of the New Testament then tells us, so what? We see the life, we're amazed by the life, but how do I honor that life? And so you turn to Jesus' legacy. Acts through Revelation then are meant to show us what it means to honor the life of Christ. Because of what he did, what are we to do? What is our reaction to be? Every book of the remainder of the New Testament points back to How am I to be a follower of the one who died for me? The book of Acts, the key word is church. There's no way to miss that. It's the birthday of the church, Acts chapter 2, where Peter preaches that first gospel sermon following the, the resurrection of Christ and the ascension of Christ. And he makes sure the people understand this promise is to everyone. Of course, it takes a little while for even Peter himself to understand that. But the remainder of the book of Acts, you see very famous people, Peter, Paul, and others, but also very common everyday people who just reach others and tell them about Christ. And they grow together in this wonderful place we call the church, praising God, having favor with all people. And the the Lord added to their number, added to the church daily, those who are being saved, Acts 2 and verse 47. The church, by the way, if I may put a little parenthesis here, The church, number one, is not an afterthought. And the church, number two, is not a negative thing. The church has always been the plan of God. And if we don't get that, we need to spend some time in the book of Acts because it shows us not just the beginning of it, but how glorious it really is as it grew and grew through a very difficult time. The book of Romans, some have called the most difficult book in the Bible. It almost certainly is the most difficult book in the New Testament. It's a very dense book. 16 chapters in length, but very dense. I once, I, I told my Wednesday night Bible class this. I one time, I heard of a, a preacher. In fact, I listened to a few of these before I figured out what he was doing. He decided to preach through the book of Romans. And 238 sermons later, he was done. And honestly, he didn't repeat much material. It is extremely dense. It's been called the greatest letter ever written. But the book of Romans has its key verse, chapter 1 and verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The rest of the book simply tries to clarify that. And so you have the key word of clarification. What is the gospel? What does it mean for Jews and Gentiles to get along and to be one in Christ? What does it mean to be justified by Christ? What does all that mean? And Paul takes this letter to very skillfully unpack all of that information and show a very intelligent congregation of the Lord's people what it means to be a Christian and to be one in Christ, to love the gospel and to not be worried about was I a Jew or was I a Gentile because now I'm in Christ. The book First 1 Corinthians, to me, frankly, is the hardest book of the New Testament to stomach as a Christian. <laughs> because you have, I know it has 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, I get that. But that's a, a light in the midst of a very difficult book. You have a congregation of the Lord's people that is struggling with everything. It seems as if chapter after chapter, they're dealing with all kinds of problems. And so we'll give this book the key word correction. And that's a very light way of putting it. The key verse is chapter 1 and verse 10, where Paul said, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same spirit. From that point on, it seems as if everything else is negative. They're arguing over spiritual gifts. They're arguing over eating the Lord's Supper. They're taking each other to court. They're they're allowing sin in the camp and being proud of it, 1 First, First Corinthians chapter 5. And Paul takes chapter after chapter after chapter to basically, in a very nice and genteel-inspired way, say, stop it. <laughs> That's basically what the book is saying. And by the way, even the 1 Corinthians 13 passage, the love passage, is in the midst of correcting them about spiritual gifts and saying, there's going to be coming a day without any making a difference anymore. You better love one another. And we love one another the right way. But aren't you thankful it's first Corinthians and there is a second Corinthians? Because after Paul wrote this very scathing letter, he writes them a letter of comfort. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of mercies and the God of all comfort. That's second Corinthians one and verse three, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we may comfort others as well. by the way, second Corinthians chapter seven verses six through fifteen say much the same thing. there's still some correction going on. this congregation doesn't have everything figured out, but Paul was able to write them a letter saying you're doing a lot better, and I want to comfort your hearts in a very difficult time. The book of Galatians, I think is a book that a lot of men, especially young men, should get into very deeply because the book of Galatians is a book of combat. It's a very powerful book. Paul is extremely bold in this book in telling Christians how to fight for the faith. There are some very strong words, both to the Christians, telling them to, to make sure they're being correct, but also as Christians. For example, chapter 1 and verse 8, "...but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed." That's in Galatians. Galatians 3 and verse 1, he calls them out, "...O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you?" We don't see much like that in the New Testament, do we? But we see it here. But Galatians 5 reminds us it's also about having combat so that we can be free. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Christians are to fight for the faith. It's a book of combat. It's not Christianity is not a passive thing. It's a fight. It's a war. We'll take two letters together, Ephesians and Colossians have sometimes been called twin epistles. They've been called that because they have very much the same message. In fact, some suggest Paul may have written one right after another and kind of had one in mind when he wrote the other, because they're so similar. They even outline very similarly, even though they're different, at different lengths. Ephesians has six chapters. Colossians has four. But the first half of each book is very dense and doctrinal. And the second half of each book is very practical and quite simple. It's just, here's how you live it out. We'll give these two books... The key word compliance, because what Paul is trying to say to both of these congregations, the congregation at Ephesus and the congregation at Colossae is simply this. The church isn't yours. You need to live your life in compliance with Christ. It's Colossians that reminds us more that Christ is the head of the church, although it's said in Ephesians as well. When we have our pew packers down here on Sunday nights, we've stopped doing this now because we've moved to the Old Testament. But for some time, we were going through the New Testament And we're trying to get them to memorize the books of the New Testament and a theme with each book. And we got to these two. Here's what they said. And they're correct. Ephesians, the theme of that book is the church of Christ. And Colossians, the theme of that book is the church of Christ. Because he's the head of it. But the books of compliance. Church isn't yours. It's Christ's. We submit to his headship and we follow him each and every day. Between those two books is the wonderful little book of Philippians. A lot of people's favorite book of the Bible. The key word is cheerfulness. Depending on the translation you have of this four-chapter book, between 16 and 17 times, you'll see words like joy, rejoice, or rejoicing. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Philippians four four. But it begins far earlier than that. All the way back up in chapter 1, beginning of verse 3, Paul said, I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. If you need a little pick me up in life, spend some time with Philippians. I guarantee you put a spring in your step. It's not everything's in its positive. There's some negative things going on. But overall, it's a book of joy and cheer and making sure that our joy is always found in Christ. The two books written to Thessalonians, the Thessalonians, both deal with the coming of Christ. We'll give them the key word coming. They cover a lot of specific things. But in each letter, for an extended period of very short letters, 1 Thessalonians 5 chapters, 2 Thessalonians just 3, and considering how brief those letters are, in extended periods in each letter, Paul writes about the coming of Christ, being ready for it, what it's going to be like. It's here that we see those things about the, the trumpet sounding and the call of the archangel. It's in these letters we find that stuff out. But Paul is reminding in both letters to make sure you keep working, but also make sure you keep looking. Have that balance in your life. Don't just give up and stop and sit back and do nothing because you don't know when this is coming. But always keep your eyes open. Always be ready for the coming of Christ. As a preacher, the next three letters of the New Testament are some of my favorite. 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus. In 1st Timothy, Paul is writing to his young friend, some call him his young protege, Timothy, telling him some things that are very difficult, but also making sure that Timothy remains true. The key word is conduct. As Paul gives the key phrase in chapter 3, verse 15, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Timothy, do not be afraid to preach the truth and do not be afraid to remind the church there's a proper way to live. In Paul's second letter to Timothy, the last one chronologically that he wrote, probably literally facing his death, Timothy was struggling. And so the key word in this book is the word constancy. You may want to put consistency. The key verses are every preacher's theme. Second Timothy four, one and two. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke and exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. In other words, Timothy, keep at it. Stay true. And while that's said to a preacher, it's needed by every Christian. Titus is a very interesting little book because Titus is telling, Paul is telling Titus to set things in order to make sure that this congregation that's doing okay gets even better. It's in Titus you see things like appointing elders. It's in Titus chapter 2 that you see things like older men and older women teaching the younger men and younger women. But give this the key word completeness. You're completing a congregation that's already pretty good. But make sure you finish things out. Don't, don't stop. Go for perfection. Go on to what God would have you to be, what Christ would have you to be. Don't just be okay with being okay. Don't be okay until you're conformed to the will of Christ. Titus, you preached that. A little tiny book of Philemon. A wonderful little book where a runaway slave finds Paul is converted and has to take his own letter back to his slave owner, Onesimus. He had been converted and Paul was sending him back, Philemon I was sent back. It's a book of compassion. Because Paul tells the slave owner, you welcome him back as you would welcome me. You welcome him back not as a slave any longer, but as a brother. You want to stop a lot of world problems? Let's apply this little book. And you stop a whole lot of world problems. Because when someone becomes a Christian... In our culture, it may not be this way, but we'll use the words anyway, slave or free. But when someone becomes a Christian, male, female, young, old, rich, poor, whatever, they're a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ. Those labels are gone. It's a book of compassion. The book of Hebrews is the New Testament book of covenant. If you've never read the Old Testament, you may struggle with the book of Hebrews because it quotes from it, alludes to it, and pictures it. Almost almost in every verse, close to it anyway. But the key the key thought in the book of Hebrews is we live under a better covenant. Chapter eight and verse thirteen tells us that Christ made the first covenant obsolete. He took it out of the way. And the key word really is the word better, because throughout the book you see that Christ is better than angels, Christ is better than Moses, Christ is a better priest than Aaron, Christ is a better high priest than any old testament high priest, his sacrifice is better, his worship is better. The temple, God's people, is better. He's a better priest than than, than the order of Melchizedek. And ultimately, heaven is better. It's a book of covenant. The Old Testament was good for a time, but it's obsolete. And now we live under God's covenant, the law of Christ. James, I call the book of common sense. (laughs) I also could give it the key phrase, Too hard to follow sometimes. Because this is the book that is so practical. It's been nicknamed the handbook of Christianity. But it's also the book that sometimes you look at and you want to hit yourself upside the head and go, why can't I just do this stuff? No man can tame his tongue. Thank you, James, for saying that because that's exactly how I feel. But James goes on to say, but you have to. It's James that reminds us about the sin of partiality. If someone comes in wearing fine clothing, don't give them a good place to sit while you put someone in poor clothing somewhere else. You treat it by the same. Well, I know that's true, but can I do it? It's a book of common sense. It's everyday Christianity. The book of 1 Peter is written to Christians in a time when they were dealing with persecution. In fact, the book even opens by saying they were being scattered by persecution. And it's a book of consolation. You need encouragement. You need strength to make it through. By the way, if I may say this, it's little wonder that this is the book, excuse me, where Peter appeals to elders as an elder himself and says, feed the flock of God. He began by saying they're being scattered by persecution. And virtually at the end, he says, elders, feed the flock, tend the flock. They need human consolation along with scriptural consolation. Second, Peter is a book that deals, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> with caution. First Peter deals with problems from without. Second Peter deals with problems from within. False teachers are infiltrating the church and Peter gives very strong warnings and words of strength to fight against their influence. You caution against false teaching. First John is a book of communion. The key idea of this book is assurance. We can be assured if we walk in the light as he is in the light. We have fellowship with one another and the blood of his son Jesus cleanses us, literally continually cleanses us from all sin. First John chapter one and verse seven. Love is the key word, but it's more than just ignoring mistakes. John shares that love, that that love includes some conflict at times. But that this love will win in the end. It's a book of communion with one another and with God. The shortest book of the Bible is the book of second John. And it has the key word of commandment. John writes in verse 6 of that little book, to walk according to His, that is Christ's, commandments. And then he writes in verse 9, everyone who goes on and does not abide in the teachings or the doctrine of Christ does not have God. There's a standard to follow. And this little tiny book, sometimes called a postcard, shares with us that command, following God. Third John is a book of commendation. John must deal with a very bad influence. But his real purpose is to commend those who are faithful despite that bad influence in the church. I want to commend those who are remaining faithful while dealing with the negative. Jude is a power-packed little book. It's the book that teaches us to contend. Contend earnestly for the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. is in Jude, verse 3. Brother Aubrey Johnson, who held our meeting here last uh, June, some of you may have studied this little book. He wrote a book on Jude that's called Spiritual Patriots. Every concept of that book is found in this little book of Jude. And the whole of the book, basically, is about fighting for the faith, contending for it. Not just sitting back and going, well, I guess somebody knows the truth and I guess they'll preach it. No, I fight for it. I hold on to it. And finally, the glorious book of Revelation. It's difficult. It's highly symbolic. We just got through reading it with our kids and... None of us have any idea what we're reading either. Sometimes in some of those chapters, but we look at it and we go, "Why does the dragon have sixty-four heads? And why is stuff oozing out?" Of it? I have no idea what's going on sometimes. But no matter what's going on in that book, we cannot miss. It's a book of crowning. It is a book of victory. Those who are with Christ are faithful. Excuse me, are victorious because Christ has already been victorious. In many ways, the key verse is chapter 17 and verse 14. They will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. It's a book of crowning. It's a book of victory. It's the book that talks about diadems and being in heaven forever, but also, also about casting those crowns before the throne of God, because He is ultimately victorious. Before the throne of Christ, I should say. And so from the beginning of the church, to instruction, to encouragement, to confrontation with those who are false, to the fact that we will win in the end, these books give us the legacy of Christ. And they teach us to present that legacy to the world around us. And so, folks, it's all about Jesus. As we did with the Old Testament, remember the New Testament has every book a focus on Christ. In Matthew, he's the promised king. In Mark, he's the miracle worker. In Luke, he's the great rabbi. In John, he is God in the flesh. In Acts, he is the message to be preached. In Romans, he is the one who justifies. In 1st and 2nd Corinthians, he is the first fruits of those who have died. He is our hope. In Galatians, he's the one who sets us free. In Ephesians, he is the blessing giver. In Philippians, he is the one through whom we can have joy. In Colossians, he is the head of the church. In 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, he is the one who will return again. In 1st and 2nd Timothy, he is both the mediator and the message. In Titus, he is the blessed hope and the great God. In Philemon, he is the one who truly sets us free. In Hebrews, he is the one who is far better. In James, he is the one for whom we work. In 1st and 2nd Peter, he is the chief cornerstone and the chief shepherd. In 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he is love. In Jude, he is the one for whom we contend. And in Revelation, he is the victorious king. Folks, it's all about Jesus. And that's true from Genesis all the way through Revelation. When God said, let there be light in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 3. At some level, Jesus was already on the cross. And at some level, Jesus had already overcome death. Because God loves his creation enough to know that we would choose to go away from him at times. And that we were without hope. And so from beginning to end, he helps us see that at the center point of history stands not just a person, but Emmanuel. God with us. And at the centerpiece of history, God with us took my place. And if I never respond to that, I've missed the point of everything in life. Not just the point of Scripture. I've missed the point of everything in life. Because I have chosen at times to walk away from God. I have chosen at times to not follow His will for my life. I have chosen at times to not live the way He would have me to live. Because He is loving and gracious and merciful. He let His Son take my place. And all He asks of me is to faithfully try. Is to do the best I can do to honor that centerpiece of history and to make my life all about Jesus. Jesus shed his blood on Calvary, on the cross. And in those books that follow over and over and over and over and over again, Acts 2, Acts 9, Romans 6, Galatians 3, and so forth, God says, if we will contact that blood in the waters of baptism, I don't know how it works. I'm just thankful it does. He'll take my sins away. He'll take my sins away. If I'll be immersed in water, baptized for the forgiveness of my sins, trusting that it's in that place that I contact that blood that Jesus shed. And then over and over and over and over again, he says, once one has done that, if you will walk in the light, if you will live faithfully, if you will be faithful, if you'll do what God says, if you'll, if you'll submit your will to His daily, if you'll make your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is reasonable, it's your reasonable service, then I get to be with Him forever. I don't have to live my life just for this life. I live my life Longing for the day. Longing for the day. When I get to look at God and at Jesus on their thrones and cast my crown down and say thank you for making it all about Jesus. Do you need to become a Christian this morning? Do you as a Christian need to re- re- come back and say, my life hasn't been all about Jesus, but it needs to be? Be thankful. Be thankful that God has given you an opportunity. And take advantage of that opportunity in humble submission and obedience. As the go we stand and as we sing.